We've all heard some great lawyer jokes. Trust us, we've heard them, all of them. But without sounding too adversarial, lawyers are humans too. In fact, that's the main theme of this podcast. Welcome to The Human Lawyer, the time and place where we have conversations with lawyers focusing on the intersection of the existential and the practical. Elisa Schatzman is accountable. An attorney and advocate based in Washington, D.C., Elisa writes and speaks on judicial accountability. Her dream was to be a homicide prosecutor in the D.C. Federal Prosecutor's Office. Then life happened. Can't plan it. Never predictable. In March 2022, Elisa submitted a statement of record for a House Judiciary Subcommittee hearing espousing the lack of workplace protections for judiciary employees, detailing her personal experience with harassment and retaliation by a former D.C. Superior Court judge. Lisa continues to advocate for judicial accountability, appearing in publications such as NYU's Journal of Legislation and Public Policy, Above the Law, Law 360, Miss Magazine, Slate, and Balls and Strikes. Today, we talk about accountability and transparency, not solely with respect to judicial accountability, but I'm sure we might go there, but in the broader, broader context of the human experience. Through life's twists and turns, we're inevitably challenged by situations where accountability and transparency may not be valued as much as we'd like. Let's talk about that. Welcome to the Human Lawyer Podcast, Alita. Thanks for having me on the show. So, um, clearly, a, a core value of yours would, I would say, would be accountability, uh, and perhaps uh, you might one might be able to draw a parallel to, to your life early. Like is it some, when you were growing up, were you a person that like wanted to make sure like your friends were following the rules or like, uh, you know, wanted to make sure that the consequences were equitable. And so just curious about some of those early life experiences to the extent that you think they exist in forming accountability. Yeah. So I guess I wouldn't say that I was always a rule follower growing up, kind of maybe move fast and break things type of person. What I would say is that I wanted to be a homicide prosecutor because I did believe in holding people accountable who break the law. And I think, you know, I went to law school thinking I wanted to do reproductive rights litigation, also a justice focused issue. And I think it's always for me about been about holding people accountable for misconduct. Absolutely. Got it. And so then, uh, were you ever a prosecutor uh, in the DC? Like, what what happened? What back up? That's where a big you, question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where? Uh, just tell us about your path. How'd you get to where you are right now? Sure. So I went to WashU Law, thinking I wanted to be a reproductive rights litigator. Pretty soon into law school, I kind of got the prosecutor bug, did a couple different internships in the Justice Department, and then decided to clerk in D.C. Superior Court after graduating from WashU Law, wanting to be a homicide AUSA in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. Unfortunately, pretty much just weeks into that clerkship, the judge for whom I clerked began to harass me and discriminate against me based on my gender. He would kick me out of the courtroom and just tell me I made him uncomfortable. He felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk, told me I was aggressive and nasty and a disappointment. The day I found out I passed the DC bar exam, so big day in a young lawyer's life. He called me into his office and said, you're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. And it was just such a devastating experience. I mean, this is my first legal job. I was a couple months out of law school. Um, 
eventually we transitioned to remote work. Judge basically ignored me during the pandemic and eventually told me he was ending my clerkship early because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him. And he hung up on me. So I reached out to HR and they told me there was nothing they could do. And uh, it took me about a year to get back on my feet after that. To answer your earlier question, I did secure my dream job in the DC <laughs> attorney's office. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> As a special assistant US attorney. So started working there in July of 2021 and I was two weeks into training. So they'd already given me, you know, access to all the information. I was getting, getting ready to start doing my job. And I got a call from leadership telling me the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance and that my job offer was being revoked. And then a couple of days later, they extended an offer for a different position as an AUSA in the office. And they revoked that interview offer based on that same negative reference. I was two years into my legal career at this point. And this judge just seemed to have enormous power over my life, career, and reputation. Um, I filed a judicial complaint, hired attorneys in the summer and fall of 2021, participated in the investigation into the now former judge. Partway through that, found out he was on administrative leave pending an investigation to other misconduct. At the time, he'd filed a negative reference about me, but the USAO was really never alerted to the circumstances surrounding that. And I'm at this point pretty much blackballed from what I thought was my dream job. But during that summer and during the investigation, I became aware of legislation called the Judiciary Accountability Act, um, JA or HR 4827, S2553. And that would extend Title VII protections to judiciary employees, including law clerks. They're currently unprotected by anti-discrimination laws. Um, stayed in touch with House and Senate offices involved with drafting that. And that is how I came to submit a statement for the record or written testimony in March, 2022, detailing my personal experience and advocating for an amendment to that bill to cover the DC courts and Article I courthouse, which is where I clerked. Got it. So that was a really loaded question. I mean, I. Uh... Uh, so I appreciate you giving me some grace. I, yeah. So I, there's a lot, uh, a lot to unpack there. I think you know what to focus on the accountability and sort of what you've learned through the legislative process. Um, yeah. What are some things that, like, in submitting that statement to the um, to the House of Judiciary Subcommittee, what what did you learn about that process and, and um, how, how do you feel about the relationships that you've been able to develop within that process? So that's a good question. I mean, legislation moves slowly, things move slowly in Congress, and it's really a question of making sure this is a high priority for House and Senate offices. Um, I mean, I've had productive conversations with House and Senate offices, both Dems and Republicans, and people are definitely interested in this issue, interested in judicial accountability and workplace protections for judiciary employees. But Congress has a lot going on right now. It's about sustained attention. It's about underscoring that these are enormous unaddressed issues. Law clerks are unprotected by anti-discrimination laws. Workplace policies in the judiciary are not enforced. And law clerks cannot wait another year for such urgently needed reforms. So the other thing I've really come to understand is that some judges believe that they are above the law, that they are accountable to no one. And when we continue to say the judiciary is exempt from Title VII, what we're really saying is 
judges are above the laws they enforce. I think that's outrageous. That sends a terrible message to every single judge on the bench right now who is committing or has committed misconduct. I think it makes law clerks continually fearful that judges can have such enormous unchecked power over their lives and careers, even after their clerkships have ended. And I think it sends a terrible message to litigants, particularly like female litigants in a Title VII case to appear before a judge, perhaps a notoriously misbehaving one, and say, I was mistreated in the workplace, and yet you, judge, presiding over my case, are above these laws. So. And do you, did you, when, so pardon, because I'm ignorant on this, like when, when you submit a statement of the record, is that, do you then go out and present it? Or is it, is it a written statement that they, that someone else presents on your behalf? Yeah, so it's a written statement. So it was read into the record by Chairman Johnson and then Congresswoman Madeline Dean, my representative kind of introduced it. She zoomed into the subcommittee hearing. Um, so I was at the hearing, a um, couple law clerks and other folks testified. So I was at the hearing, but yeah. And uh, what the other law clerks who, uh, let me ask you this, like, have you, have you spoken to other law clerks who have shared or have a similar experience as you? Yes, absolutely. Every day I speak to or receive outreach via various social media channels and email from mistreated current and former law clerks, thanking me for sharing my story, confiding in me, sharing theirs. And this is so important because the federal judiciary, particularly state judiciaries too, are notoriously unwilling to conduct a climate survey collect any data on reports of mistreatment. They continue to claim falsely that harassment and retaliation are not pervasive in the courts. I and other former clerks know differently. I hear a lot of the same fact patterns, which are my judge tells me I'm a poor performer and I'm not committed to the clerkship, but he won't give feedback. That is just a smokescreen for mistreatment. And I'm just so concerned as I hear these stories over and over that this is not just mistreatment in chambers, as devastating as that is. This could be a long-term negative relationship between judge and clerk that can extend far beyond your clerkship ending. These judges have enormous power over their former clerk's lives, careers, and reputations. A negative reference or a lukewarm reference can tank a clerk's career. Um, so can a judge, you know, giving, um, starting rumors, false rumors about poor performance, just kind of saying negative things. It's insidious, it's so difficult to prove. And yet, if we continue to create this culture of silence in the legal community, we're just going to keep letting judges destroy their former clerks' careers. This is, so in the spirit of having like a transparent, authentic conversation, like, uh, like I would just say like, this is a tough conversation to have. Uh, because I, I, I am obviously a white man who clerked at the state Supreme Court in South Carolina and had um, a wonderful experience. And I know that part of the reason I may have had a wonderful experience was because uh, I'm white and a man. Um, and I, I acknowledge that possibility. So um, I think I think what's difficult about, and this, this isn't, again, this is just have like a, a, a fulsome conversation. What's difficult for 
about this conversation is that the exceptions create the rule. And in many respects, all laws, all laws address exceptions. That it's where to me, the exception is so egregious that we have to legislate against it to create a baseline for conduct. And to me, what I'm hearing from you is that there's this possibility out there that the exception is so egregious and so pervasive that we have to legislate against it. Because that would be, to me, you know, on the one hand, you, you know, we can certainly say like, judges have a lot of power, no, no, no disagreement there, certainly do. Um, no disagreement there on the impact of uh, the, uh, a, a poor review, because how could I disagree? Your, your lived life experience is an example of it. Um, the question then is like, what, so clearly we, at some point they made a policy decision to say, to not extend Title VII protection to judges um, because they felt like the exceptions were, weren't going to apply to them based on the nature of the role. Uh, I don't know. I'm just, again, so, I'm just trying. Yeah, yeah. So in 1995, so initially all three branches, of the federal government were exempt from Title VII. In 1995, pursuant to the Congressional Accountability Act and the Executive and Presidential Accountability Act, uh, Title VII protections were extended to congressional staffers and executive branch employees. At that time, in 1995, the judiciary was vociferously opposed to being regulated, making these ridiculous arguments that extending Title VII uh, would threaten judicial independence. And that doesn't really make sense because we're not talking about, you know, suing somebody for their rulings. We're saying if you are an employer and you harass your employees, they should be able to sue and seek damages for harms done to their life, career, and future earning potential. I am a case study in that. Whenever, and I write a lot of short articles and law journal articles, and I often get the comment when I write that the judiciary is exempt from Title VII because of this um, argument about judicial independence, I always get the comment, what are you talking about? That doesn't make sense. And these are like editors from the Harvard Journal on Legislation and the Yale Law and Policy Review. These aren't like dummies. If they don't think it makes sense, it probably doesn't make sense to most people that, and this is a smokescreen argument. So yeah, sometimes exceptions create a need for additional legislation, but the judiciary is just so underregulated and my story is not the exception. Right. You know, mine might be more outrageous than some, but I think this is happening more. I know this is happening more than the judiciary would care to admit. And we should also kind of talk for people who haven't clerked or non-attorneys about the workplace situation. A judicial chambers is two to four clerks, maybe a judicial assistant, and an often Senate confirmed, often life tenured, powerful judge working long hours behind locked doors in stressful circumstances. And there is no oversight by a chief judge or anybody else over the judge's day-to-day -day dealings with their clerks. He or she is running a small workplace and yet no workplace protections apply. The employee dispute resolution plans are not even enforced, which it is enormously difficult for a law clerk facing mistreatment to speak out. And I think that requires at least the baseline protections of Title VII, strong workplace policies, a strong EDR plan, if not more protections. 
I think one of the things that I've learned from this conversation is just the ignorance. Like when I was a law clerk, it just didn't even occur to me. Um, and I think part of that is just because it only becomes an issue when it becomes an issue. I would definitely agree. And I mean, I was not fully aware about what the lack of workplace protections would mean for me until it happened to me. And so I feel that I was a little bit ignorant in that respect as well. But it's interesting. I talk to student leaders nearly every day because part of what the Legal Accountability Project is doing is fall programming on a lot of law school campuses. Some of these student leaders are now judicial interns and externs. They're like rising 2Ls. And they're saying to me, you know, after my summer in chambers, I can see how dangerous and unregulated this workplace is. I can see how issues would arise. And so I think as I'm speaking with deans and administrators about some of the work I'm trying to do with my nonprofit, it's important to underscore the more that students and young alumni and young attorneys know about these workplaces, the more they understand that these protections are desperately needed. I suppose that was the point I was trying to make is the sense that your your work is is two pronged. It's there's the legislative advocacy piece, but there's also just making sure that young law students are more informed because, you know, and in, in, in my day, and it sounds like in your day, we you just take the clerkship and you, I don't want to say like you you, you suck it up, but you take the clerkship and you're like so beholden to what the clerkship is going to do for you that it, it, you maybe undervalue or underappreciate what rights or protections you have. So I would say two things about that. The first thing is that, yes, there are still some law schools that are giving the dangerous message that you must accept the first clerkship you are offered and you should suck it up because it's a year of your life. Um, I talked to them about that. They should stop saying those things. That's terrible advice. But the thing is, for people who are still saying suck it up, it's only a year of your life. It's not. There is nothing, even if you stay silent, even if you do not file a complaint or speak out against the workplace mistreatment, there is nothing stopping a misbehaving judge, a malicious judge from destroying your career. So the idea that people are still saying, and I see this sometimes on Twitter bubbling up, that the right professional decision is not to report the mistreatment. That, that doesn't stop a judge from continuing to mistreat you after your clerkship has ended. Yeah, I, I get it. And I wasn't, I wasn't suggesting that my law school said suck it up, but it, I was suggesting that like for me as a first generation lawyer who has no family in the industry, who has no context, to me, the clerkship was the key. It unlocked everything for me because I, I didn't go to a great law school, don't have a great, uh, you know, don't, don't have the pedigree. So what, what I was trying to emphasize is just like the awareness piece that the Legal Accountability Project is helping students, whether they're first generation law students, law students of questionable pedigree in an industry that's incredibly blue blood. Um, it just, the awareness and advocacy helps to level a playing field. doesn't matter what we're talking about, in my opinion. Oh, definitely. Yes. Outreach to first gen and historically marginalized groups is a really important part of our work. And one of the things I say to some of our more recalcitrant administrations as I'm trying to talk about the legal accountability projects initiatives is there are large segments of the law school population, women, first gen folks, minorities, LGBTQ folks who might decide not to clerk or apply for less prestigious clerkships because the workplace is just such a black box 
you don't know who the friendly judges are and who the misbehaving ones are. And if people had more information, which is what I'm trying to provide, more students would clerk. It would bolster everybody's clerkship program. So, yeah. That makes sense. What about, so clearly you're, uh, you invest a lot of time into this. You're, you've stood up the nonprofit. You've uh, submitted a statement to the House Judiciary Committee. You're traveling or at least speaking to a bunch of different um, constituents and stakeholders. We'll be traveling a lot in the fall. It's going to be a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So then what do you do for fun? I like to work out. I work out every day. I'm on the elliptical in the basement of my building. Um, nice. So that's pretty much what I do for fun. Watch some TV. Yeah. But nice. I mean, the thing is when I was a law student and a law clerk, I definitely did not think I would spend like 24 seven thinking about judges, writing about judges and clerkships. And yet here I am. I mean, I'm on the elliptical responding to emails. So <laughs> yeah, what? Well, let's go to the a future state in, in your world, because at some point, I feel reasonably confident and comfortable pr predicting this. Probably Title VII protections will be extended. At some point, legislative change will occur. That's my opinion. So then what? Uh, what what interests you? Like is, in, after after you achieve the goal that you're you're setting out to achieve through the Judicial Accountability Project, through legislative reform, what are some things out there? that you would hope and dream for yourself as you kind of take that next step? So I think the Legal Accountability Project's work will be valuable regardless of whether the Judiciary Accountability Act passes. Got it. Because, you know, it's about extending Title VII protections to judiciary employees, but that's just the baseline. We need much stronger judicial accountability mechanisms. We need to improve the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act. And then we need to be encouraging law clerks and young attorneys to stand up for themselves, speak out, file complaints. Um, if they can sue under Title VII, sue under Title VII to ensure that their rights are protected and vindicated. I think we have a long road to go from where we are now, which is law clerks don't even file complaints against judges because they're so fearful to a world in which a lot of them will be suing under Title VII. But I think one of the longer term goals of the Legal Accountability Project is to create an employment attorney database to connect mistreated clerks with attorneys who can help. I really just want to see more clerks standing up for themselves in various ways, whether that is filing suit, filing a JCND Act complaint, filing an EDR complaint to get away from the judge who's harassing you. We really just need a culture shift in the legal community from this toxic culture of silence to one of reporting. Like I can think of so many attorneys who said to me, and this was mostly women who said things like the right professional decision would be not to report, speaking publicly would tarnish my reputation, you must have done something wrong, the judge hired you in the first place. Like we have a long road to go in the legal community from one of deifying judges to one of empowering law clerks. So there's a lot more that needs to be done. Got it. So for, from what I heard and from you is just like, even, even if the legislative protections are extended, the judicial accountability projects work still, um, there's still work to be done. Um, oh, just, absolutely, yes. I mean, we are setting up our first two initiatives at the Legal Accountability Project, our centralized clerkships database for law clerk alumni to report into it and 
aspiring law clerks to be able to read about judges before applying and a workplace assessment of the federal judiciary, but we're just getting started. And we hope that we'll have more law school partners every year that we do this. We are going to a lot of law schools in the fall where I'll be sharing my story and talking about these issues to kind of galvanize student support at our more recalcitrant administrations. And they know what we're doing. The clerkship directors and deans, they know we're coming. They wanna see the student response. And I know, cause I talk to all these student leaders, that these are urgent and unaddressed issues and they want our resources. And they're gonna say, law school administration, why aren't you participating? So I think they will be concerned to hear when some of these clerkship directors say things like, it is my policy not to warn students about judges who I know harass their clerks. And it's not harassment, it's law students uh, adjusting to their first job. I think yeah. they'll be appalled to know which administrations are saying those things and they should know. You know, transparency goes all the ways. It's about judges, but it's also about these law schools funneling students into clerkships and misbehaving judges. It's about holding them yeah. accountable too. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, um, your work uh, takes time. It takes courage. It takes um, uh, skill. You've got to know the ins and outs of legislative history. You clearly know when this uh, 1995, you cited that <laughs> as a key date. So they're, they're clearly invested. And I um, you know, part of the, part of the purpose of this podcast is to highlight probably the only purpose of it is to highlight people's human experience and, and yours came through. So thank you for your time. We need to recognize that this is possible because of the hard work and support of the well-run media team. They make this easy. And speaking of easy, big thanks to Huga Coworking for access to their studio. And of course, the lawyers who agree to take time out of their busy, busy schedules to be here, even though we're sure they have better things to do. So thanks for saying yes. 